you like to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, I guess I keep saying that. I'm, I'm old school. I keep saying, open your Bibles. That means you can find it on your uh, device, whatever that may be. Um, or if you've memorized Revelation 3, you can just recall it from your mind, I guess. Otherwise, if you have one of these, one of these uh, paper ones, you can open your Bibles. I hardly, this particular one I've told you before is my preaching Bible, so there's no markings in it, and that keeps me from getting lost in other ideas that I've written down or something. So this one never gets marked up, and it stays up here most of the time. But I've gotten to where um, I hardly use a paper Bible anymore. It's all just electronics, and it's a lot easier for me to, uh, to just pull out my phone and like this morning at breakfast, I needed something and I pulled up my phone and found it that way. So if you're using your device, I'm all for you. You can do that. We're going to read Revelation 3, 1 to 6 this morning. And this is a letter written to the church at Sardis. Uh, it's a very interesting letter which Jesus has to say to them. I will read uh, verses 1 to 6 aloud and I invite you to follow along as I read. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I'm going to say ahead of time with this letter that for me, this has been the most difficult letter to, to understand what, what Jesus is saying. And I will also say that there is um, a, a lot in this letter that we could talk about that we don't have time for this morning. Um, I'm going to try and hit on the main concepts, but um, I'd encourage you um, to, to spend some time in it and study it on your own. There are, um, uh, there's a statement here of, uh, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I might touch on that this morning. But there are just some statements in here that require a lot more development than I have time for this morning. So we're not going to talk about every little aspect of it. But we are going to look at the main idea. So I was thinking about this letter. My mind went back to my high school days when I was cool. You know, that was, that was it. I had hair back then. I told Bennett when I walked in this morning that I wanted his hair. I saw him up here on the platform. I was immediately sucked back to the 70s because that was the hairstyle I wanted in the 70s and I was not allowed to have hair that touched my ears, touched my collars or collar or touched my 
eyebrows. It had to be two finger lengths above your eyebrows, trimmed up, you know, no block haircuts, the, the wonderful days of, of whatever that was. Uh, but I did have hair, and that's the way I wanted it, and I immediately thought Beach Boys. For those of you who are old enough to remember the Beach Boys, they're sorry to start out with you this morning, but uh, uh, you took me back to my high school days as well uh, with the rest of everything from this week. But one of my prized possessions from high school was my letter jacket. Now, letter jackets are not what they were back in those days. In the 50s and 60s, you had letter sweaters. I don't know if you've seen pictures of those, but they were sweaters that you wore that kind of come down here, and you had your, your letter of your school. And uh, in the 70s and into the 80s, I don't know what happened after that, but uh, a leather jacket, it was a heavy jacket, leather sleeves, uh, wool felt for the rest of the body, and you had your big letter for your, for your school. Uh, our school was Silver State, in Colorado, and a lot of people don't know that, but Colorado, that is the silver state, so our school was named after that. Silver was the big production thing in Colorado. So I had a big S, and the way that you earned a letter was that you, for those of you who don't know this, you had to play so many games on a varsity level in order to uh, qualify for a letter. So I was a freshman when I got my first letter, and that was a big deal. I was actually in eighth grade uh, working out and playing with the, the uh, varsity, junior varsity and varsity team uh, and sometimes suiting up for, for junior varsity games. But I got my first letter when I was a freshman and that was just like so cool. I had just made it. Because there were seniors who didn't have their letters. They played sports all the way through but hadn't played enough games to get a letter. So I had my letter as a freshman, and I loved strutting around school. I mean, I wore that jacket all day long, and especially around seniors. I wanted to be around the seniors and just kind of, you know, have that thing in front of them with my, my, my athletic thing on there. That was for baseball my freshman year. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, as, as it went on, you got your football one, you got, I got my basketball one, and then I had bars. Little, there were gold symbols with little bars next to each one for each year that I lettered. So, you know, you look kind of like one of those generals in the military when they're in their dress uniforms with all their stuff and all that. It was a big deal. But uh, when I graduated, my brother who had, both my brothers graduated from college before I got out of high school, my number two brother um, came to me and said, you need to put your jacket away. You're out of high school now. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, this is, this is going to college. I want to show everybody who I am when I go to college. And he just said, he said, put your jacket away. You don't want to wear it at college because you're going to come off as immature and self-absorbed, which I was very good at both of those. I was totally into immature and as being self-absorbed. Um, but I listened to him, and I retired my jacket. And in the end, my jacket, and Terry and I are still getting counseling over this, but in the end, my jacket got put in a barrel thing and stored in a damp basement. And one day I just said to her, where's my letter jacket? This was, this was a few years after we were married, and I just kind of wanted to see my letter jacket. I said, where's my letter jacket? Hmm. Well, it was in the basement. Okay. And it got all moldy down there. And so I threw it away. And it was just like, 
You threw away my letter jacket. That was my life. That was everything. My bars. Did you save my... No, no, it's just gone. And, you know, the reality is uh, not only has that happened to my jacket, but it seems like it's happened to my body and my athletic reputation. They both suffered the same fate. They just kind of went down the tubes and into the landfill somewhere. And I say that story to move to talk about Sardis. Because Sardis was a city that was kind of living in the past as a city. They, at one point, Sardis was what others have called, was referred to at that time, as the crown jewel. It was the crown jewel city. It was the most influential city there was. It was founded in 1200 BC which puts you back at the time of, I'm trying to tie this to Bible history so you know kind of the time frame. Sardis was founded about the time of Gideon and Barak and Deborah, those judges, in the times of the judges. That's when Sardis was founded as a city. According to legend, it was founded by the sons of Hercules. Okay, you know Hercules from the myth? the Greek myth. Supposedly the sons of Her Hercules founded the city. Now, you know, did Hercules exist and did his sons actually exist? Well, that's irrelevant in that culture. It, it, the fact that they claimed that founding and that heritage just told you all about these people and how they viewed themselves. They were the offspring of Hercules. And they were, as a city, treated that way. It was founded on the top of a mountain that rose 1,500 feet above the surrounding area. They say there's a range of hills and mountains there that go all the way up to 7,000 feet, but they were founded at about 1,500 feet at the top of a mountain. And what was unique about that mountain and very strategic was that three sides of it the, the sides of those mountains had collapsed or uh, fell down. So three sides of it were almost perpendic totally perpendicular, crumbling rock, which meant you couldn't come up the sides to get up to the top of the mountain. It was, you could not come that way. And the only other way to come up that mountain was a saddle ridge that went up the side of it that had a very steep and difficult road to get up to that, what they called an Acropolis at the top of that mountain. So if anyone wanted to attack them, it was nigh unto impossible to do that because you couldn't get up the sides and the other one, by the time you got up there, their whole army was assembled and you were toast. The city spilled out into the plain below the mountain on both sides, but if there was any threat of anything, the, the, city, the citizens would immediately head up that road and get into that citadel and they would be safe. They had a saying about them at that point in time um, about the chances of Sardis being conquered and we would have a, a similar phrase, a different phrase today, but similar concept, and that is when pigs can fly. As far as everyone in the region was concerned, there was no way to conquer Sardis. It was completely impossible because of how defensible their position was. It's gonna become important a little later on. So they were strong, they were 
they believed in themselves. They had this reputation around the area um, as, as a strong, successful people. And they were incredibly affluent. Down below the city was a uh, uh, river that ran through there, a smallish river that ran through there. And the banks of that river were yellow. And they were yellow because of gold dust. The legend was also part of mythology, but the legend was that King Midas, remember that guy, everything he touched went to gold? He wanted to be really rich, and so uh, he was given the gift of anything he touched went to gold, and if you've read the story, you know how it turned out very sadly. I believe it was his daughter that he turned into a gold statue when he touched her. The rest of that story is that he wanted to rid himself of this, what he thought was a blessing that was actually a curse. And he went to the river, he was told to go to the river by Sardis and wash his hands. So as the legend goes, he went to that river, washed his hands, and that turned the banks to gold dust. And then from there on, they mined that gold out of those banks. And that part of it is true. The last part of it is true that they just began to mine gold from the banks of the river and it continued to stay yellowish from the gold dust and eventually they had accumulated a huge amount of gold. They were the first city in history to produce coinage. They had their own coins and their original coins were made out of gold and silver but as they accumulated more gold they began to produce gold only coins and they were considered to be the purest gold that you could find anywhere. So the city became incredibly wealthy because of the gold that surrounded them, and eventually a king, Croesus, became, uh, began to reign, and he became known as basically the second Solomon. He was the richest king in all of the world at his time. That's who Sardis was. Couldn't be defeated, incredibly rich, and trade came through there, all kinds of merchandise, and they were incredibly, uh, I keep using that word, but they were incredibly uh, influential in the region. Everything went well until about the mid-500s. And a guy prophesied by Daniel in the Bible came to power in Persia. His name was Cyrus. Daniel prophesied of him. You might think, I've heard that name before. Cyrus is the king of the Medes and the Persians who at the end of the captivity uh, sent the Jews back to Israel, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city. And he, he gave them all kinds of supplies and gave them permission to go back and rebuild the city walls. <clears throat> Under him, he became so powerful that he began to conquer all the lands around him. And in the mid-500s, he marched on Western Asia and came to Sardis. And after 14 days of siege on Sardis, they had, their, they had their armies up the road. No one could go out the sides or the back, so they had the armies up the road at the gate. After 14 days of siege, one of his soldiers... Was, was walking around trying to find a way. He had sent soldiers out to look for a way to get up. And one of his soldiers was walking around and a guard who was at the top of the mountain 
was looking out over below and his hat fell off his head. His, his military hat fell off his head. And that soldier for Cyrus watched him as he came out of the city and went to that side where that soldier was and went down the mountainside to retrieve his hat and then went back up. And that clued that soldier of Cyrus's into how you could get up that mountainside. And one night while another soldier was sleeping, that soldier made his way up the side of the mountain and got into the, the citadel and in the middle of the night walked through and opened the front gates and let Cyrus's army in. And that was the end of uh, Cyrus, uh, Sardis as the, uh, as the impregnable city. Pigs learned to fly that night. Sardis, at the peak of its glory, fell. But by the time that Jesus writes this letter, sends, has John write this letter to the church of Sardis, by 8090s, the city has been repeatedly defeated by Alexander the Great, Antiochus II, and later by the Roman Empire. It's just a shell of what it used to be. It's not affluent anymore. It is no longer self-determinant. It has no influence in the region. But these people, although their city wasn't as beautiful or powerful or wealthy as it was in its glory days, the people would continue to talk about the good old days and feel a great amount of pride in who they once were. And we're talking hundreds of years later. The city is just there doing its thing, but they're still walking around in their letter jackets and their letters showing them off who they were. You don't know who I was or who we were, but no one really cares anymore. And it's in this environment that the Christians have found themselves. Little is known about the church in Sardis, and there's a lot of competing views as to what Jesus is trying to communicate to them in this letter. But Jesus seems to indicate that the church had a similar problem as the city, and that is a connection with each of these letters. There's things about the culture of the city that inform what Jesus is saying to the church. And what Jesus says to these people is that, he says, I know your works and you're expecting something good to come. The other ones have been, I know your works, I know your, your faith, your love, your kindness, I know all these things. And he says, I know your works. I know you have a reputation. I know you have a name. Now he's speaking to the church. I know you have a reputation, but you're dead. You're not who you think you were. You're not who you think you are. Like the city you live in, you have a, re you have a reputation of being alive. So that's an interesting statement that he makes to him, to, the, to, the, to this angel and to the church, is... You know, the other places out there, they think well of you. They think you're successful. They have good, you have a good reputation amongst the rest of the churches because they think you're alive. And honestly, as you read church historians, 
Most of them take this to indicate that at the annual Southern Baptist Convention, they were publicly praised and their pastor was often the keynote speaker or the elected president. Okay, I want to know if you were awake. You're just starting to, you're wondering what's going on there. That was a joke. The Southern Baptist Convention did not exist in AD 90. It wasn't until AD 110 that the Southern Baptist Church began to exist. You guys should know that. But somehow you're just, you're just not tracking there on that one. No, they don't believe that about it. But from a serious standpoint, the other churches seem to think very highly of this church. So from all outward appearances, the church was doing well. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to say very quickly, you know, that as a church, it's easy to live in the past. And it's easy to long for the glory days. And it's easy to long for what once was. And, and to have an idea, we do this with, with our country, we do it with our city, we do it with our jobs, we do it with everything. We want to live in the past. And those were the good old days. You know, the good old days. You know, my, my dad used an outhouse and had to take a bath in a tub of water in the kitchen and as the fifth child he was the last one to get to use that tub of water after everybody else took their baths I don't think that's the good old days I don't think northwest Wisconsin with two feet of snow on the ground in January is a good old day to have to shovel a path out to the outhouse to use the bathroom I don't get that and in the summer with spiders in there I probably would have been going in the trees before I went in that outhouse but we have a tendency to do that, and I have never heard this here, but I have heard this in other contexts of churches, and that is, that's not how we do things here. And I'm glad that I've never heard that here. But we can't live in a world where it's all about what we once were, and what we liked, and what we wish we had back. It's what do we do with what we have, and how do we, as a church, pursue Christ where we are in this time? And I would also say, based on what Jesus says to this church, that we make a mistake when we look at the wrong, false criteria to figure out if a church is successful or not. The size of their building, the number of the people, the activities that they have, What's, what do they have? It's like, it's like this, people go to churches now with a little checklist, checking off their history, because we have to have history on our, our webpage. So what's their history? Do they have this program and this program? Is, is, the, is, the, is the preaching this way? I mean, does he go 15 minutes to 20 minutes? Because that's really what I like. Oh, he goes 30. Mm. Oh, and then there's that, there's that weird guy over at Northbrook who just goes forever. I mean, how are you ever supposed to listen to that? And he's talking on a level I don't understand. We're looking at all the wrong things when it comes to church life. And Jesus looks at this church that has a really good reputation among the, all the other churches. And he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I just had to put a pin in their little balloon. And, and how fun would it have been 
when John circulated this, this epistle of this revelation of Jesus Christ and these letters from these seven churches began to circulate among all the other churches. Especially when you get to the church of Laodicea. Ephesus. John's the pastor. They must really love each other. You know what? You left your first love. And just go right down the line. And Sardis, boy, we all thought that was a great church, but Jesus says they're dead. How humiliating, how embarrassing. And Jesus can say this because Jesus knows the heart and sees beyond the surface. While human beings can be very deceived by what they believe to be good or bad in all of life, Jesus sees right through all that stuff. He sees right through all of our trappings and sees beyond the surface. Jesus presents himself here in the same way that he did to the church at Ephesus. He speaks of the seven spirits and the seven stars. And as we talked about with Ephesus, the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit who empowers the believer, who indwells the believer, and definitely knows what's going on in the hearts and lives of God's people, and surely knows who are the citizens of heaven. And because our God knows everything, he, in the person of the Son, God the Son, knows the spiritual state of the church in Sardis, and in his view, this is a dead church. I, again, I just wonder how many times, I mean, I've, I've been in hundreds of churches over the years traveling for the college. And I, I sat back as I was studying this and thought, how many of those churches that I went into that I thought were thriving and just amazing churches because I was impressed with their facilities and I was impressed with their organization and I was impressed with how they did what they did on Sunday morning, how many of those might have actually been dead? And how many of those small rural churches where the pastor had been there 20 to 30 years that we assumed he was there that long because he couldn't get a job anywhere else? That's the assumption out there. If you've been in a small rural church for a long time, it's just because you couldn't get a job anywhere else. Because those are the stepping stones. How many of those churches were actually alive? And how many of those pastors were there 20, 30, 40 years in the middle of nowhere because they love their people and they love Jesus? Again, we just get so messed up on how we, how we view and judge success and specifically spiritual success, if you will. But Jesus sees right through that. And he says, you're a, a dead church. That's, that statement just had to shock them when they read that. I, I imagine the elder of the church in Sardis standing up and saying... <clears throat> Um, we got a letter from John, and um, according to John, this comes from Jesus, 
and um, I've got to read this to you this morning. Jesus says, I know your works, guys. And he says, I know you have the reputation of being alive. But Jesus says we're dead. Can you imagine how that felt to that church on that morning? Dead. Well, what did he say about the other churches? You know, that would typically be our first response. How do we line up with the other ones? doesn't really matter. He said we're dead. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Moron, isn't it? A dead church. How can you be both of those? But he says they are. The question that I've wrestled with is whether or not Jesus really meant that there is no spiritual life in this so-called community of believers. Does he really mean to say to them that he looks at this church, <clears throat> excuse me, he looks at this church and says there's no spiritual life there? As I've thought about it, I've come to the conclusion that I think that there's at least three kinds of people in this church. First, as you go down in the letter, Jesus says, in verse 4, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there are some people who are spiritually alive. And there are some people who are pursuing Christ-likeness in this church. That makes me wonder what it's like for them, what it was like for them to be Christians who were trying to pursue Christ-likeness in a church that Jesus said was dead. But there are some. These are people who it says are presently worthy to walk with Jesus. They have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white. In the future, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So Jesus is saying right now, there is a group of people in this church who are worthy to walk with me in white someday. So I have to put them in a category of people who have trusted Christ, who will be conquerors, and as we find out, their names are written and will not be erased from the book of life. And that Jesus will confess their name before his Father and the Father's angels. So, so there is a group of people there that we would have to put in the category of obedient believers. I would also suggest that there's a second group that seems to be found in most churches those who claim to be believers but are spiritually dead. They would be the people that Jesus is referring to when he talks about the tares among the wheat and who along with others are surprised to learn someday that in spite of their good works, God never knew them. Depart from me. I never knew you. 
They will say, but we cast out demons, but we did this, we did this, and God says, I never knew you. It's a group of people that seems to be ubiquitous among churches that are not spiritually alive, but are very religious people, very moral, very upstanding in their community, maybe leaders of the local church. There are people who have heard the gospel, but have not apparently received it in a way that produced faith for salvation. In the meantime, they do participate as uh, contributing members of the church, but they do not have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. These people rely on good works that they are doing or have done rather than the finished work of Christ. So we have at least a group that are believers and are obedient believers, and we have a group that are not believers but are religious. And then there's a third group to whom I think the majority of this letter is addressed. And I think that there's at least three clues that help to inform us as to their situation. First, after Jesus calls them dead in verse 1, he commands them to wake up. He says, you're dead. Wake up in verse 2. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So these are people that have heard the gospel. They seem to have received the gospel in the sense of responding to it because Jesus says to keep it. You can't keep what you don't have. You have to have it. It has to be in your possession to begin with to keep it. And Jesus isn't saying, I'm offering this to you now. Take it and keep it. He's saying, you heard this. You received this. So keep it. He doesn't say to them, you're dead and you need to come back to life. He says to them, you're dead, but you just need to wake up. You need to wake up. So that would seem to indicate that Jesus is speaking with a hyperbole here when he says you're dead. We might say in our language, you're as good as dead. What's going on in you, you might as well be dead. But the solution to it, the command about that, is that they need to wake up. Paul uses the same idea in Ephesians. He speaks to people in Ephesians 5, and he, he says to them, the time is short, wake up. Stop doing certain things. Stop living certain ways. Wake up. I don't think wake up is also a, uh, it's not a euphemism for coming alive, but, it, but about to die, which, which is what he finishes with there, wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die, indicates that life already exists. 
I would see what Jesus is saying here not as actual spiritual death, but what we would speak of today as comatose. You look dead. You're laying there on the bed. There's no response. The only way we know you're still alive is brainwaves. But it's about to die. Jesus also says of these people that their works are not complete in God's eyes. Since we know that doing works does not earn us salvation, Jesus is not saying you're, you're, you've got works to complete to be accepted with God. He says your works are just not complete. It's kind of an odd phrase. But we know from other passages that works do not confer salvation. So it seems that they have done good works in salvation, yet there are works God intends for them to do, but they're not pursuing those works. The idea is there are still works to be done. You're not pursuing those works because you're comatose. Nothing's, nothing good is happening out of your life right now because you're almost dead. And verse 5 gives us a third clue as to what's going on with these people. Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Those statements are originally spoken by Jesus in Matthew 10 and Luke 12. They're parallel stories where Jesus seeks to encourage his followers to be faithful in confessing his name to others despite the threat and fear of persecution from unbelievers. Knowing the context of that statement originally that Jesus made and now is making again, that would seem to be developing a line of thinking that there is an issue with these Christians, this group of Christians who are about to die, that there's some kind of issue of them trying to blend in with their surroundings. And I was thinking of this in terms of war, that in a sense these Christians who call themselves followers of Christ and citizens of Christ's kingdom are actually, because of fear of persecution, dressing up in the enemy's uniform, so to speak, and watching the war go on. They're, trying, they're, they're wanting to, to be able to say they're Christians on the one hand, but then on the other hand, they don't want anybody to know it because that, that could really mess things up for them in their culture. So I, I can't imagine how that would work. Yeah, you can. Sure you can. It's when it's, you're at work and somebody starts railing on those Christians who hate homosexuals and you just kind of go, I don't want to get in the middle of this one. I'm going to shut up because if I say what I believe, uh, it's not going to be good. Not going to be good at all. Or those get-togethers with the family where people begin to talk about what's going on in the world and how messed up everything is and your family are unbelievers 
and you know why things are so messed up, and it is because of the sinful choices of human beings and their lack of Christ in their life and the Holy Spirit's power, and you know that, and you just stuff your food with more face. I mean, your face with more food, just so that you can't talk. And they know that you're a Christian because you told them way back when. They just got it teed up for you by the Holy Spirit to hit a home run, but mm, I don't want to cause any problems. So you know what it's like. It's the pastor who wants to sit at the dinner and not talk about being a pastor because he knows what everybody's going to think of him as soon as he starts talking. It's the pastor who, when he goes to visit his family, doesn't want to talk about the church because he just wants to have a nice day and doesn't want to be grilled about his last sermon with his family. Putting all these clues together, I would describe that when Jesus tells these people that they need to wake up, he's speaking to people who are believers but have two big problems. Their first big problem, like the citizens of Sardis, when it comes to their responsibilities as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, they are resting on their past accomplishments and reputation. These people who Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. He's communicating to them an idea about the pursuit of Christ-likeness in their lives and the advance of the kingdom in the world around them. There are those who have not soiled their garments and they've stood strong for me and they are going to walk in white with me someday. They're worthy and they're doing this not because they're better people but simply because they are being faithful to what I have commanded them because of the Holy Spirit's work in them and their desire for that. You all are not following in those same footsteps. Sardis was a great city and the church of Sardis was alive and healthy. And it's dwindled down now, not necessarily in number, but in the number of people present who are actively pursuing obedience to Christ. camouflage, if you will, or the enemy's uniform, but they're just kind of there. They're singing the songs. They're going through their motions. They're probably more moral than everybody else around them. And they're living on a past reputation. And Jesus is calling them and he's calling us to be people who continually engage in enduring and persevering. You know, I'll, I'll go back to what I've said before. We are nowhere near living in a kind of culture that these people faced. We live in a culture 
where it's been okay to be a Christian, actually it's been beneficial to be a Christian in a lot of ways. You were considered honest and trustworthy. They knew you were going to be a good worker. And, and they were religiously oriented. So, yeah, this will, be, this will be a good worker. This will be a good person. This is a good person to have as a friend. That has gone, at least in Cedar Rapids area. Maybe in the Deep South it still exists. But it's gone here. And now, it's more acceptable to not be religious. There's a culture, again, where 45% of the people around us are nuns. They don't have any religious affiliation at all. You can't start a conversation with them. Do you go to church anywhere? You could. And they're just going to look at you like, what? Do you go to church anywhere? No. Did you ever go to church anywhere? No. Did your parents ever take you to church? No. So have you ever read the Bible? No. Why would I? Well, because you need to find out you're a sinner. You know, that's a great lead-in to giving the gospel to somebody. Oh, really? Thanks. Yeah, you're, and then they walk away and tell their friends, there's another one of those Looney Tunes over there. It's not to your advantage to be a Christian anymore. But where these people are in this culture, in the book of Revelation, at the end of the first century, in all of these churches, they live in an incredibly religious environment. More than you could even imagine. Maybe going back to the colonial period, that kind of a religious uh, awareness. But the problem is that the religion is the worship of the emperor. It's the worship of Diana. It's the worship of Artemis. It's the worship of Aphrodite. It's the, it's the worship of Sybil. And it's as pagan as it can possibly be. It is an, as immoral as could possibly could be. It's not just that there's homosexual activity connected with their culture. It's that if you are a good citizen, you are going to participate in our worship. And if you don't, you're not going to work. You're not going to have friends. You're going to spend your days in poverty and being an outcast. So when I say we're nowhere near where these Christians were as far as the culture is concerned, that's what I'm talking about. You were expected to be religious, just worshiping every false god and, and engaging in all the practices that went with it. And you know what? That's called spiritual warfare. What they were in is spiritual warfare. And the reality is what we're in is spiritual warfare. And the reality is, is that ever since Adam and Eve made a very sinful decision in the garden, we've been in spiritual warfare between the followers of Jesus and the, and I'm not going to say them, the other people, but between the followers of Jesus and Satan and between the followers of Jesus and demons. And the reality of that spiritual warfare is it gets tiring. 
it gets wearisome. It gets lonely. And you start to feel kind of comatose and it starts to feel good. I'm just done with this. How, how much can I serve Christ and nobody notices it and it starts to bother me? And by the way, this is not a personal testimony. This is what people say. I don't feel that way. How many times can you try to help people in the church and serve them and they just stab you in the back? How many times can you take doing things and nobody says, good job? How many friends do I have to lose, Jesus? How many of my close family have to walk away from me? How many times is it going to require me to be honest at work and to get passed over for a promotion? And the weariness starts to set in and the other life looks pretty good and you go comatose. And so churches are full of people who are kind of spiritually comatose. This is my assertion, if you will. Churches are full of people who are spiritually comatose, who are looking for some kind of emotional jump start to get them ready for the next week, like taking a hit of cocaine or something. Pump me up, make me feel better, make Jesus seem better to me. And then I go back out there to it and totally forgot what happened on Sunday. And Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. It's easy to become discouraged and weary. And so often many Christians decide that they are Christ-like enough. Man, they're not who they used to be, gotten to this point, reading my Bible, going to church, praying, I'm good enough. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like those other people, even that publican over there. And Jesus' response is, you know what, you're right. You, you are not like that publican over there. In fact, he's going home justified and you're not. I would say to you this morning that if our life is to be an ongoing journey of being changed into the image of Christ, then we do not have the option to quote unquote, rest upon our laurels. I've said to you many times, and somebody told me the other day, you know, I, I, I can hear you saying from time to time, I hear it, and I like some of your little quotations, but one of them is, God is more interested in our direction than our perfection. And it's a wonderful sentiment. I got it from Woodrow Kroll, who used to be the guy for Back to the Bible, if you ever listened to that. And I, I say that statement to people 
because I intend it to be, on one hand, something that encourages you when you sin. Because we can really beat ourselves up and get discouraged when we sin, and we sit back and say, you know, I, I, how am I ever going to get to the point where I stop sinning? And, and the message from Jesus is, it isn't your perfection, it's your direction. Pursue Christ-likeness. Keep in step with the Spirit. Keep going forward. But on, on the other hand, it should also be a reminder that we are involved in a pursuit that is only finished and our works are only complete when we die in Christ or he returns. I'm thankful to be a part of a church where my sense is, uh, maybe I'm as fooled as the messenger to Sardis, I don't know, but my sense is that this is a group of people that want to become more like Christ. And you struggle at times. And you get discouraged at times. But overall, you get up and you want to keep going forward. I don't feel like every Sunday I'm preaching to a bunch of comatose people. You're responsive, especially for engineers, just so you know. You're responsive. I get feedback from you. You talk about the things of Christ. So I don't feel like I'm the pastor of the Church of Sardis. But I know that I'm a pastor who gets tired sometimes and gets weary sometimes and just wants to go comatose. And I figure if I have that issue, you probably do too. We are to be people who spend our entire lives pursuing the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to become more like Christ and never reach a point of putting on our letter jacket and saying, I have arrived. And that means that God is going to continually be doing things in us and in our midst that are tiring and painful to make us more like Christ and Satan is going to be continually coming after us because he doesn't like it. And probably not Satan in person. I'm, again, he's not omnipresent. But his little minions are going to be continually working in our lives to try and get us to quit. To give up. Um, I have a second thing that I wanted to talk about here this morning. So let me just read this to you without commentary. I believe that there's a second issue here that is very common in the church today without commentary because of time. It's common in the church today and at many times in church history and that the issue is wrapped up in the fear of men. And as I talked about, we fear the loss of relationships. We fear being considered stupid or worse, socially inept because we publicly identify with Jesus. And we are aware of those Jesus freaks out there who for whatever reason bring a bad name to the cause of Christ. It seems like we get lumped in with them. Honestly, from my perspective, Terry and I talk about this from time to time, it seems like every time some 
strange behavior by a Christian makes the news, it has to be a Baptist. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but it's almost always a Baptist. And then people say, oh, you're a Baptist. And I just think of that last loony guy who was burning Muslim Bibles in his parking lot, you know, and that's who we must be. And so we want to shut up, but I just want to ask you this morning that if if Christian evangelicals can be so public and so outspoken about politics and cultural issues, is it too much to expect that evangelical Christians will love their neighbors as themselves and lovingly serve them in the name of Jesus? Is it possible that we as Christians could publicly identify as Christians and not just Christians who are jerks. Because that's what we have become. In the public eye, we're jerks. When Jesus speaks to his church, and to this church at Sardis, He's warning them of a grave danger that we must also be hearing today. And that danger would be on the other side of his warning. The danger is a person's name being blotted out of the book of life and Jesus not confessing our name before the Father. When he says to them, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. He's giving the warning to those people. Now he says it in a positive way, that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. But the flip side of that statement is that if you don't, heed the warning, this is what is going to happen. You won't walk in white. Your name's going to be blotted out of the book of life. And there's a whole thread of thought there that I don't have time for this morning. And, And Jesus won't confess her name before the Father. That means you're going to go to hell. That's the warning. Now, I would imagine that most of you here this morning, I don't know who would and who wouldn't, but I would think that probably most of you would argue that a person cannot lose their salvation, and I agree with that. But before you get lost in your mind at this point, trying to prove theologically that salvation cannot be lost in spite of how one lives, and I would make the same argument, You cannot lose your salvation. I would also encourage you to remember that how one lives, especially in view of the two great commandments to love God and love neighbor, how one lives indicates whether or not one is a believer in the first place. So I think the warning should be heeded. And I think we should do evaluation about who we are and what's going on in our lives. 
Are we merely comatose? You say, we, what are you trying to imply? Okay, are you merely comatose? Or are you actually spiritually dead? I want to, and I hope you want to, join with Jesus and say that if you have ears to hear, listen. And as we've talked through this, mor- this, this morning, if you find issues in your life, I would, along with Jesus, encourage you to hold on to what you have, to repent, to wake up. Let's pray. Father, there are times in our lives where sometimes the burdens get so heavy, the difficulties get so intense that we willingly and knowingly say, no more, Jesus, no more. I'm done. But the reality is that for most of us, it's not that kind of a moment that's so cut and dried. It's more of a slow, steady drip on a rainy day that leads us to a point like the pilgrim where he's sitting on the side of the road. Not quite sure how he got there. Not quite sure he wants to get up again. Father, honestly, it feels good to sit there. It feels good to lay back and go to sleep. So, Father, I ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, to scrutinize what's going on in us. With the help of the Holy Spirit, help us to be able to identify what needs to change in light of who you are and who Jesus is according to your word, Help us to understand what needs to be brought into conformity with Christ. And most of all, Father, give us hearts of courage to get up, to wake up, to get up, and to keep moving forward. Father, you are the only God, and you make promises that you do keep. And you have promised to those who trust Christ and continue in obedience that they will live with you forever. You have also promised that those who deny Christ, who will not confess his name before others, Jesus will not confess their name before you. So Father, this morning, 
Just help us to be faithful, to love you more, to love Jesus more, and through that to produce faithfulness in us. In your son's name, amen.